0: welcome to another session with the market dominance guys a program exploring all the high stakes speed bumps and off ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host chris beal from connect and sell and Corey frank from branch 49 does the thought of placing a cold call make you tense nervous embarrassed or tongue-tied today's market dominance guys guest gavin tice A sales instructor for Connect and Sales Flight School says not to worry about this awkwardness. He even says it's an okay place to start. What a relief, huh? Our hosts, Corey Frank and Chris Beal, talk with Gavin today about how a standard operating procedure, in this case, a tried-and-true cold-call script and method of delivery, can turn that frown upside down. What Galvin teaches is how to have a lot of fun and success making cold calls. Yes, you heard him right, fun. What a great reason to listen in while this conductor of conversations and our podcast host discuss the ways that SOPs, social work, psychology, and introversion positively impact the cold calling experience in today's Market Dominance Guys topic, How to Turn Awkwardness into Success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Welcome to another episode of the Market
1: Dominance, guys. This is Corey Frank with the Sage of Sales, the Profit of Profit, and the Duke of Dials.
2: Chris Beal, I added the Duke of Dials. That's the new one there, Chris. I am excited. I'm excited. I've always wanted to be the Duke of something and not just putting up your Duke, so I'm quite happy. Well, speaking of somebody who is an expert at putting up his Dukes, we have a very special guest here. We have
1: uh, Gavin Tice. Gavin, uh, Marine Corps veteran, social work veteran. And now, esteemed head instructor, pilot instructor of the, the flight school. we call called
2: Gavin over there in the uh, the Connected Cell Flight School, Chris. Well, he is a flight school instructor. He's also a member of our conversation optimization team. And, you know, that's a lot of syllables, but it's what it's all about. It's like the fight is inside the conversation. Let's optimize that sucker. Anyway, welcome, Gavin, to the market dominance, guys. Good to
1: finally have you on this side of the camera. Yeah, so this is uh, Chris knows I would just sit in an empty room and just listen to him wax eloquently uh, about all the topics that we have here. So, so what we want to talk about today on this particular episode of the podcast is the flight school, and fascinated because as Chris you came up with maybe you can get our listeners up to speed on how the flight school came about since so it's been a little bit since we heard that origin story. And how you met Gavin and why it's such a uh, a good, uh, perfect person to uh, kind of lead some of the efforts. And what are some of the special qualities that Gavin has that makes it so successful?
2: Uh, interesting question. Well, Flight School came about because we, uh, we were trying to help a company out that had run into some problems. And they'd asked whether they could have a special deal. And we don't do special deals at Connect and Sell. But I came up with a special deal, which is a month of Monday and Friday unlimited use for the team. And then we realized that the best way to do that, that's four Mondays and four Fridays, was to train like crazy on Friday, but to train live, so they're actually getting meetings. And then to sort of let them run on Monday, but with coaching, and then go to the next part of the conversation and train that. So we we said, let's train on the first seven seconds of the conversation the first Friday. And then on Monday, we'll listen carefully for that kind of stuff, And do some coaching around it, but kind of, you know, let them settle in. And I figured there were a couple nights of sleep in there. And you don't really learn when you're awake. You only learn when you're asleep. So just came up with this idea. And after about the third week, we were flying back from wherever this was. A couple of us on the airplane said, you know, this is kind of funny. It's like taking the first sessions, like taking the airplane off. And the second one's like going somewhere. And the third one is we actually changed the order. We said the third one was like landing and the fourth one is handling the objections. Turbulence made no sense. Once you're on the ground, there is no turbulence. So we reordered the flight school so that it's takeoff, the first seven seconds. And then there's going somewhere free flight, which is the, what we call the 27 seconds. And then handling all the objections that are peculiar to flying, peculiar to the cold call in the third session, which is turbulence. And then you got to ask for the meeting. You got to get the plane back on the ground. So that's how it came about. And it's evolved a little bit, maybe even a fair amount, but it's still kind of the same idea. We added a messaging workshop on the front. We added uh, what we call a, sort of a, um, an icebreaker session. I think of it as de-icing, you know, make sure the wings right. aren't laden down with ice uh, so that everybody would be sort of warmed up and used to the product. What is shocking to me because I've had the luxury now of watching teams go through other kinds of sales training, but I watch from the back through connect and sell numbers. And I've never seen anything move the number, including, I won't say who it was, but I, who I consider the number one sales trainer in the world. I got to see a team, a big team go through that training. And I looked for the change the next day, the next day, the next day, and there was nothing in performance. Flight school, 100% of the time, changes performance because you're performing under pressure, actual conversations with real life prospects. You're doing it at pace, yeah. connect and sell speed. And you're doing it with precision coaching of just the part of the conversation that gets you to the next part of the conversation. Right. So that's right, that's right. It's, it's very different. And you know, Gavin was like so many people at connect and sell introduced by somebody else who said to me 350,000 times in a row you got to get this guy on the team. He's he's like another, you know, and uh, so the question is, was he another Donnie or another Nathan? I don't know. He was another one of them, and it turns out he is, but he brings his own very, very special point of view from his experience, which is unlike anybody else on the team. Let's
1: talk about that experience, Gavin. So starting in the Marine Corps, is there an MOS for cool calling in the Marine Corps, by the way? I don't know what what is it, Oh, 95? for sure.
3: Yeah, for sure. It'd be uh, 0351A. Yeah, So definitely an infantry level job, for sure. Uh, gotcha.
1: And so one of the things that Chris and I were talking about before we hit record here was the unique experience you bring from your service to the Marine Corps. And has that helped you train your voice? Hmm. At all. And especially since you're coaching folks, and we're big on tonality on the market dominance, guys, as you've you've heard, and and nurturing and verbal disfluencies and the ahs and the ums, all that richness that builds trust and authenticity. What's your experience like in the recording? Uh, what what type of voice training do they give you that helps? your sales career.
3: Mm. I I think it's just being able to, um, well, I'll take a step back. Drill instructors go through a school, I, I'm not a drill instructor, but they actually learn how to project their voices because they've got to sound very angry, but consistent. And uh, it's funny, if you happen to drive past uh, Marine Corps, Paris Island, you'll see the drill instructors literally yelling at treats, I kid you not. They've got their knife hand out and they're yelling at the trees like they would be recruits. I think what helped me to find my voice is in the Marine Corps, you get challenged all the time. And all of a sudden someone says, hey, you got to show the colonels that are here on tour how to do this job. And you have to act, even if you're completely dumbfounded about what you're trying to do, if I had to show someone you know, how to take down a weapon or explain to them the operating range from my old rocket launcher, uh, a Mark 153 small, you don't have time to think and you've got to talk with respect and you can't be afraid. So that, I think, was a, a great situation for me because I've never had a fear of talking to a CEO or a founder or president of a company. And um, a couple of years after that, you know, my boss in the Navy was directly an admiral. Once again, you can't go talk to an admiral and waste a lot of their time with a lot of flowery language. You really got to get down to brass tacks. So if I had to really pull that training from there, that's what it would be.
1: That's wonderful. Fascinating a little bit about the drill instructors. So that's a course on how to project their voice. Different session if the tree's ever talk back. But if they were able to glean anything from how to project your voice or how to convey authority, especially as a new recruit did they teach you how to respond and answer in a certain tonality?
3: It would be I sir at all times. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is they take away your personalization. So the entire time, if you're an enlisted Marine and you go through the 13 weeks of Marine Corps training, you never hear your first name. It's recruit last name. So it's really awkward when you finally leave that place and someone calls you by your first name again. You're like, I haven't heard that in months. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I mean, we
1: have it's to kind of like be, being married, right? You never hear. Your first
3: thing. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be able to communicate on the battlefield too, right? I mean, not everyone understands that that's actually something that's, that's in reality. And uh, whether or not you're wearing ear protection or not, you, you have to be able to project your voice. So mm-hmm. I guess it's just something you learn. I never really thought of it as being something that uh, was special to that experience.
2: Got it. Well, it's interesting. I just had a, two recent experiences that made me think of it. It's why I brought it up with Corey. So one experience is uh, I'm currently listening to, to General McChrystal's book, Risk, which I think is excellent, actually. It's very interesting, book too. And I'm listening to it because I, I love to listen to his voice. Mm-hmm. And so it's become my workout thing, my driving around thing, you know, and so forth. And then I was on a, a recent podcast called Bulletproof Sales. And the guy you know, I'm on with the guy who's a Marine. And, and I thought, wait a minute, there's real similarities in speech, in the clarity and the simplicity, of the directness of both of these people. And one of them is reading his own book. So that means it's been through a process the other is simply talking to me you no know, he's written a book so he's got a lot of language that's refined around that but there was something about it that gave me the impression that and maybe this is this kind of goes to something else that we were talking about recently it's entirely possible that what's happened in the military where clarity of communication and understanding a mission and execution of mission you're expected to understand and execute the mission so somebody has to communicate it to you clearly. You're not simply following orders. You're, you're supposed, you know, that's kind of like the big change from way back when to now is I believe, as I listen to people, I'm not in the military myself, but as I listen, it's like, huh, a big change is that there's a, a relatively greater uh, sort of emphasis on acting intelligently and appropriately within the mission, rather than simply doing what you're told, on the battlefield especially, and that confers competitive advantage to our military because they're more flexible. Uh, you you know you have to deal with each marine or each soldier or whatever as the enemy is. You have to deal with a smart person who's trying to do something and they know what they're trying to do, and that could be a problem for you because uh, somebody following orders you might be able to to counter that a little bit more easily. And I have this funny feeling that our society of business people actually is learning to execute more like our all-volunteer military. And now that we have work from home everywhere and everybody's a volunteer, you can't lock them down and say, you live here, therefore, you now have to work for Big Co in this area. It's like no work for anybody.
0: We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with 8 to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. <music> And we're back.
2: Right. That we have a lot to learn from the, the folks who went through the first big all volunteer revolution, which is the US military. I don't know, does that make a lick of sense to you, Gavin?
3: You're touching on one thing, which is SOPs, right? Standard operating procedures. Everyone kind of wants to do their own thing, but as you begin to grow, you can't be hurting cats all the time, much less how do you benchmark. So the military's built up on standard operating procedures. I I can't speak to the other branches, but in the Marines, it's all about small unit leadership. And there's always a line of succession. Every mission that you go out on, there's a five-paragraph order. And the colonel knows it, the captain knows it, the lieutenants know it, staff sergeants know it, all the way down to the private. Because things happen in war. And if the line of leadership is taken out, that guy to the left or right must know the objectives, how things are going to happen, where the fire teams are moving what the codes and signals are, and we use a lot of acronyms. That one's called USHMIAC. So it's Orientation, Situation, Mission, Execution, and Admin Logistics, and Command. And you learn this from pretty much day one in boot camp, and we have to constantly, everyone knows the operational orders. I mean, we've seen probably since all the way back to the War of 1812, the best military organizations in the world empower even their youngest soldiers on a battlefield. If there's a, a standard line of only the, the senior level people only know what's really going on within reason, if the younger recruits or the people on the lower ranks don't know that, it falls apart as soon as those leaders get targeted and you know dealt with. That's really one of the things that is pivotal in our American military
1: fascinating we were talking a little earlier too gavin with regards to that about the, the social work background that you have hmm. and uh it seems a little bit of a dichotomy here going from the marine corps knowing crystal clear what your objective is very refined right very left-brained and now you're on the social work side which is a little bit more of the connection authenticity trust side so you have this kind of amalgam this nice this cocktail or so let's talk about let's talk about the other side of the brain let's Talked about the bronze. Now let's talk about the heart. Then maybe we'll talk about the brains. It's Chris's department.
3: So. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. Social work looks at everything from a holistic perspective. And if you really translate that, my earliest sales interviews were like, How does a social worker turn into a sales guy? And I'm like, Well, it's really enterprise sales. And the first time someone said, You've been in sales all this time, I said, How so? They said, Tell me about your patients. And I said, Well, I meet with a the patient, they have a problem that they think they have. I ask them some pretty deep questions. I get a better picture of of where they're at. I offer them some solutions, and then guess what? I try to close the deal. Maybe it's medication, maybe it's group therapy, maybe it's one-on-one, and then guess what? Follow-up happens. And when they put that into this nice package, I was like, oh, I guess I have been in sales. I just didn't call it that. And so. I find it very interesting that, you know, my my degrees in psychology and social work really helped me see kind of a, a sales in a different light.
1: Sure. You know, Chris, we've talked a lot about this program even recently with Jennifer, I believe, about introverts, how introverts make the best sales force. Would you consider yourself an introvert? Yeah, I guess that's one of the
3: roles I play. You know, I put on a lot of different roles in my day to day. You know, I'm an introvert when I'm by myself. I'm a father, a husband. You know, uh, a conductor of conversations, as I call myself on LinkedIn, to keep the uh, people from trying to prospect me all the time because they don't know what to say to me. (laughs) Uh. But, yeah, introverts definitely a role I play for sure.
1: And so as you're coaching your clients in the flight school, your clients, your patients, what's the right term? (laughs) <laughs> Folks, your passengers. passengers, is that a right term? Victims. Oh, passengers. Victims. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are some of the things, We always like to ask a lot of our, our guests this, Kevin, from your purview, from your perspective as piloting this thing, and, you know, they got a tremendous amount of trust that you're going to not crash the plane here for them and you're going to leave them better than how you found them. What is the state of sales today from your perspective and maybe how it's changed a little bit in the last few years from when you first started?
3: Well, outside of the technology advancements, you know, here's what I think is interesting. Flight school is all about execution. You go through a lot of sales training. You go to workshops and seminars. It's a lot of inspiration. It's a lot of how-to. It's a lot of motivation. And that's great. But the minute you get to the car, click out of the Zoom, it's over, right? It's up to you to really decide if you're going to take all those things and put any of it to use. I tell people now, I said, look, no one's in line in your industry or vertical, willing to sit here and make cold calls with me. So I congratulate you because there's not a big line for it. But what I think is more profitable is what we're doing is we're teaching execution. We're allowing and telling people, hey, you're going to fail. Probably the first time in your career that you've been told it's okay to fail. But if you follow what we have, if you take our direction and you execute, you're actually going to have a lot of fun making your cold calls today, and it's a beautiful thing.
1: And when you say you're going to have a lot of fun making your cold calls today, do they believe you? You get some interesting looks because, you know, especially
3: if it's day one, they're like, you're going to have me say this weird 27-second thing, and I don't know, every time I've made cold calls, people just get angry with me. But, again, you know, we have a lot of information to provide, like, hey, follow our direction and just execute. And then I'm on the back end of things. Hey, that was really good. A lot of people need nurturing, right? If you don't nurture people around and you're just constantly kind of telling them all the doom and gloom, it doesn't go so well. So I think one of the key things that's changed in sales is now people are starting to really empower their teams and to give them a lot of positive strokes.
1: What is the state on that same theme of sales where you see folks really struggling with today? And that because you, you see so many the beautiful thing about certainly what you do at, at uh, Connect and Sell, what we do here at Branch Forty Nine, is we're so we're pretty business agnostic. What you say, Chris? Business is business. It really doesn't matter. You really are able to condense it down to. Uh, people talking to people, biophysiology, right? All the things that we learned from the Orans and the, you know, the Chris Beals of the world and Chris Vosses of the world. So with that then, Gavin, knowing that you you have this special purview where, where they're selling insurance or play tickets or cyber technology, it's B2B sales. What are people being taught or what are people doing that they should uh, almost immediately, stop doing. Right? And once you point it out to them, they never do it again. Like uh, the habits you learned in boot camp—that you don't—you've never done it again because you learned it the right way.
3: Well, the first thing I'd say is stop committing hate crimes. Which means, Ooh. how are you today? Right? It just signals to everyone, junior person in sales, probably their first job, and you know this conversation's going nowhere, and you get the immediate, yeah, not interested all said i think the other part is is the showing up and throwing up you know who wants to be told hey all all the time that you spent in your previous initiatives the money all the personnel that got detailed you know from procurement all the way on up hey you've been doing it all wrong and by the way i've worked with all these great companies and we he saved them all kinds of stuff and wouldn't you like to be in the same place it's really like saying hey you know what Corey, you know their baby's ugly. And um, I'm here to go ahead and put some lipstick on it and make it a prettier baby. And when you attack people's intelligence like that, because in some cases, a lot of people put their career, their respect within their companies, and it's kind of like Chris's Tesla model, right? If, if you buy a Tesla for yourself, it's not such a big deal. You can go get rid of it. But if you buy a fleet of them for the company and then you find out oh you've been doing it all wrong and you should have bought some Toyota Camrys, like man, that just beats people down and who wants to have that in a, in a cold conversation happen right yeah. Yeah.
1: Chris, from your perspective, uh, what we heard from from Gavin here, if I only had time for a 10 minute flight school right uh, you know how you take those helicopter tours across the Great Canyon you can do the full hour. Or, you know, you only have a couple hundred dollars. Your kid wants to go, I only have 10 minutes. What's the, so if I only had a 10 minute flight school, just a circle around the Grand Canyon and land, what
2: should I learn? This is actually what this whole market dominance guy's thesis is about, is that in seven seconds, you can get trust 100% of the time. And that trust is durable. So if you don't blow it by doing something stupid, like trying to sell to this person later, then you get to keep their trust forever. And trust is true competitive advantage in a world where the buyer is naturally conservative and afraid of making a mistake. Because it is their reputation, it's their kids' college education. It's a lot of stuff that's on the line. And so, you know, the, the question is, well, how do you get started? The funny thing about flight school, and it would be like an airplane, right? Most important things to be able to land it, but if it never gets up in the air. You're not gonna have an opportunity to land it, so you gotta get the damn thing off the runway. you gotta get it up in the air you gotta get it committing an unnatural act. The first time you ever see an airplane jump off the ground, so to speak, you should be surprised because there's nothing you can see that's making it float right like it's a it's not like a balloon full of helium or something like that. It's like something is going on there. And that's something that's going on there is magically making this thing fly. Well, if you want to learn to fly airplanes, you got to figure out how to make that thing happen. That's the first seven seconds of the conversation. Once you're in the air, everything changes. Now you actually have a lot of freedom. If you don't just like, you know, drive the thing into the ground or there's not very many other airplanes up there to hit, you have a lot of freedom. So if I had a 10-minute flight school, I would do one thing. with with somebody. And it would be to teach them the importance of and then have them execute on the first seven seconds. And the first seven seconds have exactly two components. One, tactical empathy, help them see or understand that you see the world through their eyes and believe that. And the other is the other element of trust, which is proving to this person or at least demonstrating you're competent to solve a problem they have right now. And you know what I find is the big flip for folks is when they realize they're in charge, that you as the sales rep are completely in charge and in control as soon as you recognize that you are the problem. It's when you try to divert away from the real problem, which is you, that you immediately blow the trust. Mm -hmm. As soon as you attempt to pivot to value, you're actually saying, I'm not the problem. But if, if you are the problem and you're saying you're not the problem, You're covering up, you're lying, right? So why should you be trusted? So if if you change the goal, like if I were to take everybody who cold calls, everybody cold calls and say, ask them, what's the goal? Well, the goal is going to be to get a meeting. The goal is going to be to have a conversation that leads to a deal. The goal is my commission. That's actually the goal, secret goal, right? The whole market dominance guy's concept says that's incorrect. First of all, the achievement rate is too low, sub 5%. And secondly, the impact is too small. You can have a higher impact on the marketplace. If you think of it as a marketplace, say, what's my impact on the marketplace? It's going to be, if I can pave this entire market with trust before my opponent makes the first move on their chessboard, so I get to make 64 moves, and then they get to make one, and all of my moves improve my position in the market relative to the trust that folks have in me. And it's always a person, not a company, then I'm going to win in the long run. And the long run's going to be shorter and shorter and shorter because I can harvest that trust through future conversations that explore possibilities. So I would teach that one thing. It's like, you, you only have seven seconds to get trust. The good news is it's easy. Let's learn how to do it 100% of the time and then get over this thing. Oh, I failed because I didn't get the meeting. It's gravy. We'll teach you later, once you know how to get trust 100% of the time. So now you're winning. Now we'll teach you how to harvest a little sooner. And we'll teach you things like the Cheryl Turner insistence clause. And we'll teach you the nature of the math of the no-show and all that other good stuff. But man, until you can execute, it's like if you asked me, what would you do if you only had 10 minutes to teach somebody how to swing a golf club? It would actually be a very specific thing. I'd put them in a situation where they couldn't make the mistake everybody makes so that they can learn that it's possible for the stamp thing to work. I'd take their left, are right handed, I'd take their left hand off the club because they're too weak. They're not physically strong enough to keep the club from releasing, which is the key to the golf swing. If they only have their right hand, it feels funny, but the thing that feels funny suddenly works. And then they have the confidence to pursue the rest of a program of having a real golf swing instead of the fake baloney that most people have.
1: You know, I think that could be fetching Miss Finucci The title of her book, again, for those uh, that were part of the first part of the call, is what, Chris?
2: It's Love Your Team, a uh, survival guide for sales managers in a hybrid world. And her point is simple. The leverage point in performance and sales is the highest performance arc that we do that's in the main line of business. Right it's it's right in the line of business you have to go through the a value chain that includes sales to get anything to happen whether in the innovation economy or not you're stuck you're on one side of a performance and on the other side is a relationship that's trying to explore is there something here to to do together you've got to go through sales so that's about a person yeah and now the question is how does that person feel before they can play the game of sales how do they feel about who they're playing it with.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And until you get there, my guess is, you know, we, we see this now in military engagement that's going on somewhere in the world, right? Over in Ukraine. And the question is, how much do these people believe in what they're doing? The ones who are defending and the ones who are invading. And the ones who are defending, they believe a lot, right? And they love their team. They love each other. They're kind of stuck with it, right? How do you get there in the world Of managing a sales team—that's what Helen's on about, and I'm telling you, I think that's the true leverage point. Is that the leverage point in sales is, frankly, the belief the team has that you have their back.
1: Well, I was just comparing the title of the Fetches, uh, Miss Finucci. There, her title of her book. Versus I think the title of your book, Beyond the Market Dominance Guys, is I believe the quote says, the thing that feels funny suddenly works. So that's actually not a bad name <laughs> for, for the book. What do you think, Gavin? On the, thing that, the thing that feels funny suddenly works. So
2: it has nice nice range to it. I would call it this turning awkwardness into trust. Turning awkwardness into trust. And because that's really it. And and it's funny because the awkwardness is on both sides. Sure. Awkwardness doesn't have to turn into hostility. Awkwardness is a great platform for getting to trust. It's Without the it. best platform for getting yeah. to trust. I had
1: an interview earlier today with a candidate, and she is a, I'm not going to say which state, but she is a former Miss East Coast state, about two years out of school. And she had a wonderful, wonderful voice. Gavin, you have a wonderful voice. Um, we talk about a number of folks on this podcast that just, you know, there's certain folks that have enough raspiness that just you trust immediately. And this gal has a wonderful, wonderful voice. And I had her read the screenplay, right? Um, and we're big believers here, Branch 49 of the 27 Seconds. We are fierce defenders in all things social, as you know, Chris, <laughs> The, the folks who maybe don't understand the power of the 27 seconds because they're seeing it as merely its words versus the performance art that it entails. And she said, you know, so and so and so. So I know i in an eruption. I was like, no, respectfully, Mackenzie. But we talked about a little bit about the world of hepatics paddocks, linguistic programming, right? Everybody has the, the ant that reaches out and grabs your hand. They can touch your knee. If you have glasses, what's the prop, right? How can you pull off the glasses? And for, as Chris has taught, I know I'm an interruption is almost as if you have to do this with your hand. I'm Sicilian, so I have to talk with my hands. It's the law, right? But if you say, I know I'm an interruption. And so when you walk the floor of Branch 49, you see constantly, right, one arm is bigger than another for these folks because they're saying, I know I'm an interruption. And that's that timing buffer crutch, if you will, Chris, right, that helps them accentuate that piece that sometimes is missing what you're talking about, about if I can only teach 10-minute flight school, how do I establish
2: that trust and then hang on to it in your life where I don't lose it? Well, Gavin, you teach this stuff. When you're teaching the takeoff part of flight school, that first two hours, how do you know that somebody has clicked, that they flipped over to believing that awkwardness were, you know, that it's an okay foundation, that it's a good place to start from? Because we know, naturally, we think it's a bad place to start from. And we've been told our entire child lives, and it continues a little less into our adult lives, you know, don't be the bad thing, right? That's what we've been taught. I've been around some babies recently. And even when they're two months old, one month old, we're already telling them not to be the bad thing, and we do it reflexively as parents, and then teachers, and then you know we get to a certain age, and sometimes the police have a chat with us, and uh, some authority figure is always telling us not to be a bad thing, right? Nobody is ever telling us to be a bad thing, we can't go back through our whole life and say, "Oh, thank goodness," you know. Ms. McGillicuddy took me aside and said, I want you to be bad. (laughs) And yet, in the cold call, we are a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Where did that happen? How do you know that they just got comfortable with the discomfort of the awkwardness and that they are now seeing it as power?
3: I think we all tell them immediately, look, your first five calls are going to be garbage. Just accept that. Mm -hmm. After that, you're going to see something happen. You know, depending on, of course, the list, it happens without fail. You go, all right, I'm going to try this whole 27-second thing. When you're listening, and the first couple ones are kind of garbage. Mm. But they they see, like, people say, 27 seconds, okay. You know, yesterday I had a fun experience where they were calling some data scientists, and they go, 27 seconds. It's very specific. Let's go. You must have something really interesting to say. And I was like, wow, the probably thousands of conversations. I've never heard anyone kind of say that before. And it happened several times yesterday. So it's interesting. You can if I could see them physically, I can hear them. And you can hear the timber and their voice change. Once they've had a couple people that didn't slam the phone on them or tell them they're a bad person, collectively, it's usually like 27 seconds, sure. And then, you know, hopefully they don't pause too long and then they actually. <laughs> Go into what they're supposed to be doing. But you see very quickly the timbre and their voices change. And then about mm, conversation 15, they're delivering the 27 seconds very eloquently because they know it's going to work. So it, it's all about the timbre and modulation in their voice. And it's it's like magic. It happens all the time.
2: Isn't that funny? And yet what I see out there in the world of sales training a lot is Kind of an introspective approach that says look inside yourself and try to improve by noting your fear and then making it irrelevant or some such thing like that but you're actually taking people on the opposite journey which is go ahead and just do it and then the feedback you're going to get is going to include surprisingly positive things that you didn't expect it's like the unexpected is the positive thing. And then the reinforcement begins there. Do you latch onto those? When they, when they get that first positive one, is that where you go, listen, what do you think about that? He said, in 27 seconds, that's really precise. Sure, you must have something, you know, like, what do you think about that? And what do you do with those, the first positive?
3: The first positive, if I catch it, obviously depending on the size of the team, you know, my immediate is how'd that feel? I think I felt good. I can't believe it. I'm astonished. I think what's even more powerful is once they're actually into free flight and they go through this breakthrough that seems very clunky and like no one's going to buy this. No way. And then they have what I call the rollover, which is they deliver that breakthrough. It usually doesn't sound so great. They say, do you happen to have your calendar available? And the person says, yeah, yeah. I've got time next Tuesday. Not not the rep asking for that time. The person. And then you hear them pause, and it's almost like, did they really just say they'll take the meeting? Was it that easy? And then I hop on immediately afterwards. I'm like, now do you believe me? And they go, Oh my gosh, that was ridiculous. And they're like, they accepted already. And I'm like, of course they did. You drew, you got their attention. You got their trust, and then you delivered something that made them very curious. Yeah. And so that's like the magical moment, I'd really say.
2: There's an interesting thing about curiosity that I just thought of. I've been speaking with some people recently about uh, individuals about their own sort of branding, about becoming somebody interesting. And if you think about personal branding, in professional personal branding or personal personal branding, it's about becoming somebody interesting to some subset of the world. So flip it around and say, well, that means some subset of the world is now curious about you. And what you just described is somebody experiencing having their brand change to the point where somebody else is interested in them, is curious about them. And they might have felt before that like they weren't worth having somebody be curious about them. So you, you've inverted the notion of find self-worth by being told you're worth something by me, the instructor or the helper or the social worker, to find self-worth by the reaction of somebody else who's interested enough in you to say, yeah, I'll meet with you. Yeah. Is, is that Is there some of the magic hiding in that inversion, I'll call it, a reversal of of the usual way we think about this?
3: I'd say 100% because the the typical situation is anything but. I call it a complete stranger. I kind of show up and throw up all over them. And then they go, yeah, I'm not interested. And then all of a sudden you take this thing that's really weird and a breakthrough. I don't have a breakthrough. What do you mean we discovered? And then they put it all together And I always tell them, I say, look, about one out of every, I don't know, hundred, this is going to happen. And so you have to be ready for it. And I prompt them and then it happens. And I think, I think it's magic because they're like a complete stranger just took what I said and it was interesting enough and curious enough that they've taken this with me. And I think it goes down to your self-worth for sure. Yeah. Because now they know it works.
2: Isn't that funny? I never really thought of flight school as a self-improvement program about your feelings about yourself, but I do actually believe that in the general case. And Corey and I have talked about this with regard to Branch 49. We call Branch 49 finishing school for future CEOs. Because one thing all CEOs have, at least all the ones I know, is not only the ability to have a conversation with a stranger, but the confidence that that conversation is probably of some value to that stranger. It's okay for me to be interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't have to hide my light under that bushel. It's all right. I can peek it out a little bit. I don't know, Corey, what do you think about this?
1: You know, this, um,
2: this, uh, the same candidate from today,
1: um, you know, she's been in pageantry you know, since she was a little girl, and part of the it was fascinating. You know, a, a world I don't, I know nothing about. Clearly, look at me; I know nothing about magic. Um, so <laughs> you're
2: beautiful, Corey. <but>, huh?
1: <laughs> so they, you know, there's the extemporaneous where there's a and A portion. How would you solve the world? How do you solve the UK crisis? How do you figure right? And a lot of it is just the extemporaneous. How do you, you know, how can you think on your feet? And I interesting? Do you have a beginning, middle, end, all that stuff? And we talked about, after we role-played, because she said, I'm sorry, I'm normally very good at this, right? But I said, understand the nuances. You're used to communicating with no, it's like a hook without a bar. I can communicate, put out information that I think is fascinating. The audience isn't going to rate you, right? The judges are, but the audience isn't. And you're speaking to the audience, you speak to the judges. But on what you had just said, Gavin, right? that the self-worth it's almost as if the pitch think of it almost like a like a little hook a little barb at the end of a fishing hook that piece that bar piece is the curiosity did i literally and figuratively hook them right enough to say you know yeah tuesday uh tuesday does work for me especially when they could do it proactively without you know even suggesting a day and um so i find that fascinating when you're dealing with one-on-one communication versus your Example, Chris, when I trying to build a brand out into the world of LinkedIn, out into the world of social media, right, public speaking, you know, for insurance conventions or what have you, that this is a very intimate, but also a very tactical exercise to have just enough of a barb where it's not going to wound, because it may have to throw that person back, right, that fish has to go back. I don't want to rip anything out, but they can break free if they want, but it's enough where... You know they they can't because curiosity is just just too strong. Those that connective tissue
2: is is too powerful. That's fascinating business. The whole, Gavin, I got to ask you a question. So when you were first exposed to uh, this craziness, right? Because Flexible is not only about this breakthrough concept uh, that we use, the breakthrough script idea, which is is kind of a, a stumble upon that. Evolved over time. There was the five hour Saturday morning that it kind of coalesced. Thank God I was working with somebody who knew nothing about sales and a lot about the human mind and language, because otherwise we wouldn't have gotten there at all, I don't think. But when you were exposed to it, and I, so what were your thoughts as, and feelings about it when you first heard this crazy way of talking to a stranger?
3: It was hard for me to acknowledge the fact that I'm an interruption. I'd always been credible by just saying, hey, look, this is a sales call. You're welcome to hang up with me. Give me 30 seconds to tell you why I called. But to just say, like, literally, I'm throwing myself under the bus mm. was, was kind of a, a leap for me to say, okay, I can get behind this. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I love standard operating procedures. You know, when I learned that having those procedures in place could make me successful
1: instead of winging it
3: and kind of being mediocre all the time, changed my life.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Well, Gavin, uh, I tell you what, we can—we uh, got to have you back again and again here. Uh, if anything, to hear the stories, um, almost get a state of the union of sales, because I think you have a, such a unique position, certainly flight school does, but you, Gavin, as an instructor there, to see, is our profession getting better? What ails our profession kind of as a aggregate that we as sales leaders, even if we're not You know, users of uh, the connected cell weapon system should be aware of as uh, as coaches, since we want to love our team, and we got to have the fetching uh, Miss Finucci on here certainly uh, very soon, uh, Chris, to talk about that concept of loving your team. So this is Corey Frank for Chris Beal, the powerful market dominance guys podcast. Thank you, Gavin. Till next time, guys. Thanks.
0: Modern and Innovative Sales Toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys, or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.